0: Hello and welcome to the better human podcast my name is adam wagner and i'm a barrister specializing in human rights this episode is about the troubling case of shamima begum a young woman who went out to syria to join isil at age 15. she's been described in the uk press as the isis bride the supreme court has recently amongst other things prevented her returning to the uk to fight her appeal against the deprivation of citizenship To discuss this difficult case with me, I have Sarah St Vincent, who is the Executive Director of Rights and Security International. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate course taught in London study for your llb while also immersing yourself in the study of politics with a focus on modern threats to democracy and human rights on a local national and global level only on the new llb law with politics and human rights degree at goldsmiths if you want to find show notes and support the podcast with a few pounds a month you can go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com So, Sarah, thanks so much for joining me um, to talk about this very difficult case um, of Shamima Begum. Um, th- this this was really a, a, a very big deal. Um, it has been all the way along ever since Shamima was tracked down in a refugee camp um, in Syria. This has been, you know, on the, a big part of the national conversation in the UK um, from an ethical perspective, from a legal perspective and the basic story um and i'll just i'll just tell that, that on a very simple level that the the basic story of of how the case ended up in the supreme court is that um she her she was deprived of her citizenship um, and we can talk about the, the detail of that and and the, and the troubling aspects of that but she was deprived of her british citizenship um despite having been born and grown up here um on the basis that she had access to bangladeshi citizenship and that she she is stuck in syria she's not going anywhere um fast she cannot return to the uk and she asked the home secretary could she return to the uk so that she could appeal effectively appeal her um the, the, the deprivation of citizenship um and I, and i suppose it's, it's important to point out that that appeal has not been heard and in fact the Supreme court was not trying to um, deal with that appeal. All the Supreme Court was looking at in terms of the deprivation of citizenship, in terms of what people have been really interested in, is whether she could come back, whether she could have entry clearance to come back. The Secretary of State responded to her lawyers and said she cannot come back because it would not be in the, you know, she would be not be conducive to the public good, um, presumably because she's a security risk. Um, she has cooperated with, with ISIL. She was out in Syria for, for a number of years, that sort of thing. Um, and that appeal was lodged, but it but it became apparent that while she was in a refugee camp in Syria she would be unable to effectively participate in the appeal and these appeals are obviously very fact based it's very important that she is able to give a full account and be able to give oral evidence be able to give effective instructions to her lawyers and it was concluded and i don't think it's, it's disputed in the case that she couldn't give effective uh, she couldn't effectively participate and the Court of Appeals said that, is, um, that fundamentally breaches the rule of law, that she needs to be able to come back, fight her case. Um, there can be some level of control if she's a security risk, whether through a terrorist prevention um, measure or some other um, method, and she can fight her appeal and, that, and, and the interests of the, the right to a fair trial effectively trump the national security concerns as identified. Now the Supreme Court um, disagreed with that, and the Supreme Court said we um, we disagree with that assessment in, in effect, there is that um, the, the, the Court of Appeals should not have gone behind the Secretary of State's security assessment, and therefore she will not be coming back for an appeal and not only will she be not be coming back for an appeal, but we we assuming that she won't be able to have a fair appeal from Syria, the appeal itself may have to be indefinitely suspended. Um, and th- there's a lot more in the judgment because the judgment goes into the, um, the cer- certain points about the Secretary of State's policy-, policy towards extraterritorial human rights, and also some very technical stuff about the um, the relative roles of the the different tribunals and and courts in our jurisdiction. But I I hope I haven't um, c- completely. Um, Misrepresented the judgment. But I just wanted to give it a sort of general summary before before we start talking about sort of talking about to kind of clear the decks. Um, my first question to you is, um, in your view, what what is this case really about?
1: <laughs> yeah, thank you, and and it's great to be with you today. Um, I actually, yeah, I would tell the story that you just told a little bit differently. So let's do this as as kind of a thought experiment. I think another way of telling this story would be to say that in 2015, a child of 15 traveled with two other children. The UK government allowed those children through an airport. Those children traveled to Syria where they um, subsequently engaged in a sexual relationship of some kind with people they ostensibly married. The legal age for marriage in Syria, according to the organization Girls Not Brides, was 17. The legal age for marriage in the UK is 18, everywhere except Scotland, where it's 16. So, you know, whether this was in fact actually a case of anyone getting married to anyone is questionable. Um, what we have here could be a case of child marriage, it could also be a case of trafficking. Under the Council of Europe Convention Against Human Trafficking, um, anytime a child travels, um, and experiences exploitation at the other end. That could be sexual exploitation, it could be labor, it could be um, basically military activities. Um, that person is a trafficking victim. So we have children who traveled from the UK and arguably were trafficked to Syria. Um, when they were when one of them was rediscovered by a British journalist and an article was published, the Home Office. Uh, An institution that immigration lawyers in the UK and others have long regarded as having problems of institutional racism, rightly or wrongly. Um, That is a concern, including in the context of the Windrush scandal, which was ongoing and is ongoing. Um, Those concerns have long been expressed. The Home Office scoured this child's ancestry to see if she might have some other kind of citizenship. The home office then decided to take away this child's British citizenship, which she was born with. So by the time that she was rediscovered, she was technically no longer a child. She would have been about 19. So, but this this young person was living in Syrian camps for foreigners who had um, wound up in Islamic State territory and were allegedly the family members of Islamic State members. Um, UN experts have concluded that conditions in the camp may amount to torture. Um, I think that there's a strong argument that at minimum, they amount to cruel and human or degrading treatment or that they violate rights to basically physical integrity. They're very dangerous places and places with a lot of um, deprivation and health risks as I can get into. My organization, Rights and Security International, um, last year before I joined, uh, had documented the really terrible conditions in these camps. So the UK Supreme Court ultimately gets a hold of this case Again, thinking about other ways to tell this story, the Supreme Court has 12 justices, all of whom, to the best of my knowledge, are white. 11 of them are men. This all-white court accepted the Home Office's conclusion in effect that this child of color, or former, sorry, she is now a young adult, basically accepted that the Home Office could decide that this person is so irredeemably dangerous that she can't be allowed to come back to claim her rights. UK Supreme Court criticized the lower court, the Court of Appeal um, for basically making a finding that um, this person was not so much of a threat to national security that they couldn't be allowed to come back and assert their fair trial rights. After making that criticism, the UK Supreme Court turned around and accepted that this young person presented such a threat to public safety that she couldn't, could, that, that could outweigh um, her right to, to fair proceedings. And so this young person of color is still sitting in this very dangerous refugee camp in Syria. Sorry, you could call it a, you call it a detention camp. You could call it an, an internally displaced persons camp. There's some you know debate about how that should be described, but a dangerous and squalid place. And I think we could extensively discuss the roles that race and gender have played in this story.
0: And and, and it's interesting the um, that you bring up the framing of the story because um, one of the points that was made about the Supreme Court judgment is if you read it and you compare it to um, the, the Court of Appeal judgment which was obviously went in um, Be- Begum's favor it seems to frame the issue much more from a security perspective than from the perspective of the appellant of of Shamima Begum um and it is and and it I mean I, I I'm just reading them I'm putting them side by side now and you see even, the the way that the the factual summary um, and these things you know they they they're kind of things that will be missed by people who don't. Um, Spend a lot of time looking at these kind of things, but I think they are important. You know the um the, and it, with the factual background section in the court of appeal, it begins. Miss Begum's father was born in Bangla- mm-hmm. Bangladesh in nineteen fifty eight, and then it goes on to explain her upbringing, his you know where he came from, his British citizenship, um, it, the fact that she was born, then she you know that both her par- both parents were settled in the United Kingdom. Um, she left, then she left the United Kingdom with two school friends and, and the story of her, her losing her three um, very small children. And then, well, I mean, they, they died, which they not lose them. And, and then the, the Supreme Court decisions starts with on the 19th of February, 19, 2019, the Home Secretary was invited by his officials to deprive Ms. Begum of her British citizenship on the mm-hmm. basis it would be conducive to the public good due to the threat that she was assessed to pose to national security. The submission before him, which included an assessment by the security Science services, advised him, etc. Um, she was said to have travelled to Syria in two, February 2015, when she was 15 years old. Um, and then it tells that story. And, and And it's quite obvious that they are telling the story through the eyes of the Secretary of State, considering the security risk, or at least, or even, not even him, the officials, considering her security risk. Um, and, and even there, we have that, that really interesting um, dynamic of well, who, whose eyes are the court considering this case from? And you've got two courts that have really considered it through different perspectives. But then you have this. Uh, the, the, unfortunately for her, it's the Supreme Court that prevails. Um, can we just dig into this this question about race? Because one of the um, one of the one of the big controversial points about this this approach to citizenship is that you can. Um, Deprives you're not meant to. um, In fact, you're legally not allowed to deprive someone of their citizenship if they are um, if they don't have another citizenship to fall back on. So you can't make them stateless. But in this case, it was um, considered that because. Um, Begum's father was Bangladeshi therefore in in Bangladeshi law potentially she would have access to Bangladeshi citizenship although Bangladesh have declaimed her completely unsurprisingly because um, you know why, why would they if they're being told this is a potential terrorist what's the likelihood of her being allowed to claim that citizenship but that that is not just about begum that's about a lot of people it would apply to a very very many people in this country um if that was allowed to um you know well, it has been allowed to um to be authorized
1: yeah i so i want to to revisit a couple of things that you said about the the uk supreme court seeing this through the home office's perspective and then i'd be happy to turn to that citizenship question because i agree there are some real um, <laughs> logistical inconsistencies around how the government and the UK courts are thinking about um, Ms. Begum's relationship to Bangladesh. Um, so y- you mentioned the Home Office assessment, and I should say that that yes, the court, the UK Supreme Court, basically said that the court should be deferring to these Home Office assessments of, of dangerousness and risks to national security. We haven't seen those assessments. Um, I think that. Although some portions have perhaps been disclosed publicly, um, much of that evidence remains closed. It remains out of view to us. And the entire reason we're going through this exercise is that Ms. Begum has not been able to come back to the UK or communicate effectively with her lawyers um, about her side of the story. So we are necessarily having a one-sided view here. That's that's how the case arose, really. Um, And so what we know of the Home Office's assessment seems to be largely non-individualized. Um, The Home Office has made a bunch of statements about the Islamic State and what the Islamic State was like. Um, There isn't a whole lot of discussion about Ms. Begum as an individual. And so we see her lumped in, I think based on religion and perhaps based in some ways on on race, um, with others. And you don't see this kind of individualized assessment of who she is, what she has gone through. We say she traveled to Syria. The UK Supreme Court says she traveled there. Was she trafficked? Um, does that word "travel" hide hide an actual victimization behind it? And so, one of the things I thought about in reading this judgment was many of the the racist narratives that you know, is, I'm from the United States, and and the racist narratives that we encountered in the 80s and 90s, and still do about dangerousness and race, or the idea of super predators. Um, This idea that some people are just so irredeemably dangerous that they'll necessarily pose a threat wherever they go and no matter what happens. Um, That is a racist stereotype. And it's not clear the Home Office has done the work to make sure it avoids that kind of thinking. Um, The only people who would really be qualified to assess Ms. Begum and whether she poses a risk to herself or to others would be qualified psychologists or medical professionals. As far as we know, No such independent professionals have been able to assess her. And so there's a real erasure of her as an individual person. And instead, the courts and the Home Office tell us that she, quote, traveled to Syria and aligned with IS. But that really hides a lot of lack of knowledge and lack of testimony right now from her about her circumstances. Um, And I think there's something to be said here as well about race and victimhood. Um, My position prior to this one was working with a a clinic that helped survivors of domestic violence um, who are experiencing technology-related abuse. But one thing that in the intimate partner violence field we've long observed is that victims of color, survivors of color, often aren't regarded as victims um, by the broader public and by law enforcement, by governments. They're somehow always seen as at fault or not really a victim, not really blameless. And I think we may be seeing some of that That same dynamic here. Um, So on the on the citizenship issue, yes, (laughs) nobody thinks, nobody thinks that Ms. Begum could go to Bangladesh. Bangladesh has said it wouldn't let her in. The UK Supreme Court has basically accepted that she is not at risk of of return to Bangladesh, uh, meaning that conditions there, her risk of torture there didn't need to be assessed. Um, And yet, as I mentioned, the Home Office has gone through this exercise. Of seeing if she could theoretically claim Bangladeshi citizenship and concluded that she could. Now, interestingly, yesterday um, the courts handed down a judgment saying that. um, So, for my understanding, is for Bangladeshi citizenship, you can claim it up to a certain age. And so, for people who traveled to Syria or maybe were trafficked, but who were older, the Home Office, I think, is now having to accept that they cannot, that they don't have that citizenship, that they couldn't get it even if they wanted to. But because Ms. Begum was a child and remains quite young, um, in theory, she has that ability. And so we see this differential treatment of her as a young person of color. Um, And you're absolutely right that because, you know, if you don't have birthright citizenship, if you don't have a system where people gain citizenship based on where they're born, then citizenship often flows through ancestry. There's a long history of gender and citizenship and patriarchy that I won't get into here. Um, But suffice to say that, yes, many people in the UK may technically be dual citizens or have a right to dual citizenship and not know it. And so you have this prospect or arguably a reality of the Home Office being able to scrutinize your racial background, your background of nationality, your historical ties to immigration to see whether you might have some connection to another place such that it could strip you of your British citizenship. And again, I think that raises real concerns under human rights law about. Discrimination, um, discrimination based on race, nationality, parentage, and also, as I said, youth status, basically, in this case.
0: One thing that um, jumps out in, in this case as well, I think, in, in you're absolutely right, we can't, I mean, this case is subject to the very odd um, special advocate procedure, where so so there are special advocates for the courts that are appointed, who are separate counsel, who get to see the security, um, the, 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 the sensitive security material, but cannot communicate any aspect of it to the um, to the appellants, so to, to Shamima Begum and her lawyers. So it's this, and, and they will be part of closed hearings um, with the judges trying to make sort of points that they think the appellant might make, which is a very strange system. Um, but uh, we don't know what's in that security material. But what we do know is that, in the case of hundreds of other people who went out to, um, you know, to join ISIL in Syria and other places in, in Iraq, they have come back to, they've been allowed to come back to the UK. And it seems like, and, and if we're going, going to be a little bit sceptical of the, of Sajid Javid's decision... It seems like the big difference between a lot of them and Shami and Begum is they weren't on the front page of the newspapers um, as as a sort of cause celeb um, in in relation to this issue. They were like they sort of were allowed to quietly returned. And in a way, it seems, and I don't know what's in the security documents either. It seems like there's a good prospect that the difference between her and the others is that she became, uh, you know, infamous because of the newspaper coverage, rather than any particular security concern about her danger to the UK as and above those individuals who have been brought back and put through deradicalization programs, security reviews, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, um, I think that she became, for in the media depiction, the embodiment of a stereotype. And again, this, this the choosing of someone as to symbolize a racial stereotype in the media, which also remains white-dominated, um, has a long history too. And so I was actually, I did a, a Google image search. Um, I was looking for an article about her that I couldn't get to. And I saw a copy of um, the Metro. So apparently the UK is, you know, the, the newspaper, the largest circulation, the thing that people would read on their way to work on the tube, right? Um, and, you know, huge cover, block lettering. And it said it had an image of her, And it said, jihadi bride wants baby on NHS. And that to me was, it's so many of the stereotypes rolled into one. It's the othering of the person. And so it's it's this connection of her to violence, we see, and foreignness. So we see jihadi, that word, bride. She's somehow, first of all, she may not have been anybody's bride, legally speaking. And she may have been a victim here. You know, and but forever fixed at the moment of, of her ostensible marriage. And then baby on the NHS just ties into so many racial stereotypes about who claims benefits and the idea that some people exploit the system. It was just, it's it's astonishing to me that that, that, that was a front page of a paper. Um, but I think that part of what happened here is, is that Ms. Begum, when she was interviewed by the Times, um, when a journalist found her in the camps um, around, I think, 2019, to most years, she may not have sounded like a victim. She was saying a bunch of really tough-sounding things like, oh, I, I saw you know, a severed head in a bin and it didn't bother me at all. The, we haven't heard from, say, trauma experts about why especially a young person and a person who's been through a lot of trauma and is still going through a lot of trauma might say things like that, um, what it might really mean. Um, and so what we have instead is once again a, a kind of assumption that this person is dangerous and a punishment of them for not sounding the way we expect victims to sound and not looking the way we expect victims to look. There was another piece to what you were asking about and I'm I'm afraid that I might be forgetting it.
0: I, I think it was it was about the 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 difference in treatment between her and other less prominent um you know i i, I people who've gone out to Syria and who have been allowed quietly to return here go through de-radicalisation programmes, you know, be managed by the security services. And it just seems, I just find it very, pretty implausible um, knowing Mm -hmm. what we know about her, the fact that she's so young, the fact that nobody's claiming she was any kind of senior leader in the movement, that she would be so much more dangerous that she would be a special case who could never be allowed back to the UK.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think there's something, I'm going to say it patently absurd, um, the U.K. has one of the most comprehensive, many would say human rights-violating surveillance sets of surveillance powers on the face of the earth um, under the Regula- Regulation Investigatory Powers Act. Um, the U.K. police have many powers. The intelligence agencies have many powers. And so the idea that somehow the U.K. would be unable to protect itself from this presumably traumatized young person um, and again, even if she weren't young, someone who's lived through this much trauma, but just again, a single individual who's coming back without many resources, the idea that somehow the United Kingdom also replete with social services, um, replete with many agencies that are, that are intended to provide assistance, um, including to people who have experienced a great deal of psychological distress. Um, the idea that the United Kingdom couldn't handle this um, and somehow would be at such a, a, such a great threat from this one vulnerable person. To me, it, it's, <laughs> I think it, it's its a neat erasure of all the powers the UK has domestically to monitor people and to track them, um, you know, and, and to be having law enforcement keep an eye on them. Again, many of us would say that some of those powers are rights violating, but they are certainly very, very broad. And I think you're right. I think that again, she's in this unfortunate situation of becoming the subject of a politicized decision. And the UK Supreme Court has suggested that this is acceptable because you know if, if people find this unjust, then they can express that when they go to the ballot box. But that's not how fundamental rights are supposed to work. Um, your due process rights are rights that you have and they're not supposed to be you know tied to what the majority thinks of you or of the decision maker. They're your rights. Um, and so I, I, I agree that this the decision in her case does seem to be based on the fact that she has become this, this poster person. Um, And has been the subject of, of unfortunately, so much, one could say, biased or at least problematic coverage.
0: The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just three dollars a month. That's just over two pounds via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human and if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable, and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. Can I just pick you up on um, the gender side of things? So I think we've spoken about race, but not as much about gender. And what, what, what's your concerns? in relation to her gender, the, and I guess the background, the specific, her specific history, um, and, 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 and I guess also age was, is, is also quite very relevant here because she was a child, um, 15 years old when she either, you know, willingly or or unwillingly went out. We don't really know.
1: Well, yeah, I think as I, as I mentioned a a few times before, there is a tendency, um, among law enforcement governments and others, to not perceive women of color as you know truly victims, truly survivors, and there's a there's a gender stereotype of of women in general as somehow deceptive or sneaky, and so you wind up with this di- dichotomy that you're either you know this this pure innocent person, um, often depicted as white, or you are this sneaky, deceptive, often portrayed as over sexualized, and so on. Um, I, Person who's who's just going to wreak havoc, and so I think that we do see some gender stereotypes um, coming into play in this case. I think gender and and her youth also play into her vulnerability. Um, conditions in the camps are terrible. Um, from what we understand, there's very little reproductive health care. There's very little health care in general, and unfortunately, Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, has had to pull out of one of the camps after one of their staff members was allegedly murdered. Um, and so I think that the the gender dimensions of this really have yet to be fully explored um, by both the courts and and I think perhaps some on, on the human rights side in terms of how it has shaped perceptions of her and how it shapes her vulnerability moving forward.
0: Can we just talk about the court's role? Um, because, because the courts are, you know, they, they play in, in these kind of cases and just thinking about the power dynamics, ultimately the Secretary of State, has an enormous amount of power um, over her. Um, you know, probably more than he, He well, he, I say he at the time and she now. Um, you know, the fact that they can deprive her of citizenship, the fact that they can um, prevent her also coming back to the country to be able to fairly take part in an appeal against that deprivation, th- that's a lot of power um, to be placed in in, in one um, part of the state. And, and you would traditionally see the courts as... The, the counterbalance to that. thats I mean, I I think that's certainly where the Court of Appeals saw itself as ultimately, if she's not got the courts, she's got nothing. She's got nothing left. Mm-hmm. She's stuck. And do, do you think the courts have, the Supreme Court has, in a way, ducked its responsibility in the, in the rule of law system?
1: You know, I'm coming from a country where we have judicial supremacy, basically, rather than parliamentary supremacy. So it has been quite interesting to me to see the incredible powers that the Home Office has and the ways that the courts are willing to defer to some of those powers. I'm less well-placed to to talk about that. Specifically, what I can say is that, again, citizenship and race have a a history of, of being intertwined that goes back hundreds, if not thousands of years. And we see a lot of Racist actions, discriminatory actions, um, and other really problematic practices playing out in the area of citizenship often because it's about who belongs um, and how they, how they demonstrate that they belong and, and who has to accept that they belong. Um, so, for example, women um, in the 19th century and up until I think the early 20th century could lose their citizenship based on who they married. If you married a foreigner, um, this would be, in at least the U.S., I think the U.K. and other common law jurisdictions as well. If you married a foreigner, you often were not considered a citizen anymore. You took the citizenship of your husband. Same, again, at least in the U.S., issues of citizenship were at the heart of um, slavery, of, of segregation, um, oppression of indigenous peoples. You know that that denial of citizenship has often been at the heart of oppressing people. Um, And I think that here it would be at minimum helpful, one might say crucial, for courts to keep in mind that connection between citizenship and often overtly or implicitly racialized programs and and policy goals I think sometimes the agencies that make these decisions aren't necessarily consciously making that connection, but I think we are all responsible for being aware of that history and for being aware of the very real consequences this creates um, for creating in that it it basically sets up a a two tiered system of citizenship where depending on your ties to other countries, um, you could potentially be stripped of this and find yourself uh, in a very, very difficult situation.
0: I'm thinking thinking back to what H- Hannah Arendt said about statelessness and she knew plenty about statelessness because she'd been stateless herself and she said you know I, I, it, to paraphrase that you there's no point having rights unless you had a right to have rights and and what she meant was human rights that are focused on the state that are only exist in the state system that the 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 problem becomes when you do you do not have a state to protect those rights and we see that and 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 you're absolutely right it's it goes back you know this idea of banishment is is so old um it couldn't it's almost you know it 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 evokes something which is very um deep in our culture and this idea that you can remove someone from even the ability to have rights um is really troubling and I, i i still found this you know even though I don't necessarily, I, I can see the, the, why people might not sympathise with somebody, it, it, just assuming, and I don't know if we can make this assumption that um, Shimima Begum went out willingly, you know, people are, have, you know, fair enough, they are worried about, about ISIL and about people who've cooperated with ISIL, but the idea that you take away all of their rights as a result seems almost medieval.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's so it's been a while since I look back at these cases, but I I think a situation like this came up in some early European Court of Human Rights jurisprudence about people of South Asian descent in East Africa um, who were deprived of their citizenship there under regimes such as EDIA means and basically forced to leave their countries but didn't necessarily have citizenship anywhere else, and so countries. Like the UK, were ac- accused of basically shuttlecocking people, um, leaving them with with nowhere they could really go. And I think we see and again. I'm, I'm not. It's been a while since I looked at those, but I, it's, it's certainly a known problem that if you, especially if you strip citizenship from someone and they can't, they can't realistically claim citizenship anywhere else. You're basically dumping them in a position of real vulnerability. Here, as I said, nobody thinks. That Shamima Begum can go to Bangladesh, even if that were accept- an acceptable idea in terms of her rights, and I'm not saying it is. Um, the Home Office and everyone have basically accepted that Bangladesh is not necessarily going to let her in. That she is in Syria for the foreseeable future. She does not have Syrian citizenship, and so she is basically left in a position of de facto statelessness, of being dumped in a place where, at the end of the day, she doesn't have a right to be. Um, you know, she's. She's there as as a displaced person or detainee, depending on how you look at it. But in the longer term, she doesn't have a right to live there either. Um, I'm not an expert on Syrian law. But again, this is a known problem. And I'm not saying that the UK Supreme Court has to rule a certain way on that. But I think um, the UK courts ought to at least be aware of this known problem of stranding people, um, especially people of color, when there's nowhere that is willing to either recognize their, that's willing to recognize their citizenship and also let them in,
0: yeah, and, and 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 it leaves open the possibility. If you if you just think of it from a, I guess from a moral perspective, it's it's put it's entirely plausible in this case that she was a vi- effectively a victim of trafficking, that she was psychologically, you know, um, manipulated or brainwashed, whatever you want to call it, to to go out there as a child um that she suffered terrible things while she was there we know that she lost 3 3 children we don't know anything about it. and that one thing you learn as a lawyer is until you become involved in a case you never know the de- the real detail you know that life is a lot more um complicated than any summary or any news article um and it's only when you dig into the actual detail that you that you really understand it um and, and and there is a real real possibility that an injustice has been done and she's left with no um no no remedy um because of the way the court deferred um and i think deference you mentioned the word deference and i think deference is the is the byword of this judgment is the secretary of state has said she's a security risk there is nothing we can say there's no evidence to counter counterbalance that and therefore she is a security risk and that is the end of the story um i I do wonder now i mean I, i don't know whether you have any thoughts about what what can happen next um, I don't know actually um, and I did mean to find out w- whether she's taken an appeal to the the European Court of Human Rights who I would imagine would be very interested in this case but otherwise it does seem that she is is potentially without a remedy she is stuck unless the politics on the ground change it does seem she's stuck. Yeah,
1: so I want to go back to something you just briefly um, when you mentioned that she might have been psychologically manipulated and say that actually for child victims of, of trafficking, you don't need that element. Um, so for an adult, for, for an adult survivor um, to, to be under the, um, under the Council of Europe Convention Against Trafficking, um, to qualify as a trafficking survivor, you would need, yes, some element of coercion, deception, fraud, something like that, plus movement, travel. Um, plus exploitation at the other end. For a child, for someone under 18, you don't need that first element. You don't need the, the coercion, deception, fraud, you know, whatever else might have happened. All you need is the travel and the exploitation. Um, so in Shamim Begum's case, it doesn't even necessarily have to be the case that, that she was somehow psychologically manipulated. She was a child. Um, and so those elements of, of movement plus exploitation are enough. Um, and in terms of what happens next, I think that, you know, arguably under European Court of Human Rights precedent, the UK should be on notice that this person might be a trafficking survivor. Um, and there is case law out of the European Court saying that the government has an affirmative duty to investigate um, concerns about that and see whether someone is in fact a, a trafficking survivor. And so, you know, the Home Office has many agencies that are part of what's called the National Referral Mechanism here. the, the it, is, it is kind of formally independent, but meant to be the way that trafficking victims get identified and referred for help and support in the UK. So the Home Office has every reason to be very aware of when somebody might be a survivor of trafficking um, and the kinds of support that they need. And so I do think that one next step for the government would be to take this seriously um, and to comply with its human rights obligations to look into whether this person is a survivor of trafficking. Um, and you know, procedurally, I again, I don't have the expertise on UK law to be able to say what um, Ms. Begum's lawyers could do, but I do want to say that, yeah, we, the only voice we haven't heard in this entire discussion, all these court cases, all the media coverage, for the most part, we haven't heard hers. She has spoken to a few journalists, but in the legal cases, um, we haven't heard from her about, you know, any any of the the circumstances that would be relevant here. And like I said, there hasn't been that kind of individualized scrutiny, really, um, of whether she would pose a risk to herself or others, and certainly not the kind of professional evaluation that would be needed. So I think that you know, before courts and the Home Office and others keep proceeding on the basis of what are basically assumptions, there ought to be some of those evaluations by independent, qualified professionals um, on an individualized basis and, you know, for, for her lawyers, um, the court did leave. It is basically a stay. So they're not saying that that Ms. Begum can never come back or never give evidence in her own case. They're basically hoping that the circumstances will change. Right now, there's no evidence that circumstances in the Syrian camps are going to change for the better. Um, again, we documented numerous threats to, to life and well-being. There's been media coverage lately suggesting that conditions in the camps are getting worse. Um, and so, you know whether her lawyers will ever be able to communicate with her sufficiently or whether she'll be able to reach a safe enough place to take her case forward, I don't know. And that's why this litigation was so important in the first place. Um, you know, So I think that there is still a possibility of some legal action in the future. Um, but in the meantime, I think the government ought to comply with its obligation to you know, take affirmative steps to investigate some of the problems that it has every reason to know um, may have arisen in, in this situation
0: Sarah thanks so much for discussing this important issue um, do, you, do you want to um, tell people how they can find out more about Rights and Security International
1: yeah sure um, so our website is rightsandsecurity.org and on there you can find an in-depth report we did into conditions in the Syrian uh, the Syrian camps for alleged family members of, of IS fighters and um, it's called Europe's Guantanamo and you can find that there um, and you can also follow us on Twitter at RightsSecurity. Um, but thank you. Thank you so much for having me today.
0: So thank you very much to Sarah St. Vincent, who is the Executive Director of Rights and Security International. Thank you also to Goldsmiths Law, who support this podcast and their pioneering LLB undergraduate course taught in London. Study for your LLB while also immersing yourself in the study of politics with a focus on modern threats to democracy and human rights on a local, national and global level, only on the new LLB law with politics and human rights degree at Goldsmiths if you want to support the podcast and help make it sustainable you can give a few pounds a month at www.betterhumanpodcast.com where you can also find show notes and other information about past episodes if you want to help the podcast you can also leave a review on your favorite podcast platform which would be extremely useful but only if it's a good review so thank you very much my name is adam wagner this is the better human podcast and i'll see you next time